another update on my continuing search for grants and loans for small businesses, um, all relating to the COVID-19 pandemic and the various options available through government stimulus. I uh, was offered by email a $1,000 grant by the District of Columbia Latino Economic Development Center. I am not Latino. Uh, I've never checked that box on any form. Uh, Maybe they found out that according to my 23andMe report that uh, I I do have 1% of my genetics are from the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, Maybe they got their hands on that report somehow and opted to offer me (laughs) an insulting grant. (laughs) All these grants are $1,000. Like, what? What do you think we're going to do with that? I guess, you know, if I got 30 of these grants, that would amount to something. And these, the best part is these, uh, these $1,000 grants come with a cornucopia of conditions that you must meet. And I don't know if these conditions are real or if it's just in the the standard legal documents for offering grants they have all these these conditions and um what i have been finding is that a lot of these applications are basically just cut and pasted from pre-pandemic times so they still have a lot of language that does not seem to apply to the current crisis. Um, yeah. So these grants, you know, they'll want, you know, they, they want to give you a thousand dollars and it's always through a middleman. So it's like, it's a, it's really a grant paid for by whatever government entity, but it is serviced through a private lender. Um, and then I'm sure the private lender, you know, they are making out because basically they, they give you a grant or a loan and then the government, government repays them for back. And I am sure that some of these private lenders are going to also be hitting up the lendees to repay the money at a later date. It, it just, why would they not do that? Um, to use whatever uh, threatening language or tactic, tactics they have at their disposal to try and bully people into paying the money back. That is a grant, you know. We give you the money, you spend it, you don't have to pay it back. But I'm waiting for those emails and threatening letters in a couple months or a year from now. Um 
So I took $1,000 grant so far by the uh, just the D.C. Small Business Administration. Uh, and that comes with lots of, you know, stipulations. Apparently, uh, every month from now until October, I'm supposed to submit a, deti- a detailed line item budget report showing exactly how I spent the grant money. And it's $1,000. It covers half my rent. I don't know. The language is for like a grant of six figures or something like that, or six figures or more. Like, I don't, how long do you think this $1,000 is going to last? Like it's going into my next rent check and that's it. It's gone. Why am I still supposed to submit? And I don't even know if I'm really am supposed to submit this or not, or if that's just language left over and nobody's actually counting. Um, it takes them long enough to get you the check, you know, between the time of your application and them actually dispersing the funds. Like if it took you that long to give me the money, how long is it going to take you to, to bean count these tens of thousands of applications just within the city? let alone, you know, nationally. Um, And the Latino Economic Development Center so far is the best because one of the stipulations for me to get the grant money, if I were to apply, I will not be applying, um, is that I, I need to write a fun essay explaining how I'm going to use the money. (laughs) You know, just a fun essay. You know, what fun, exciting stuff am I going to do with this money? (laughs) In the midst of a pandemic. I don't know. What what is there fun to do while I'm holed up in my apartment? (laughs) What wacky zany things can I put a thousand dollars towards I mean clearly by by the language of this just paying my rent is and buying groceries is that's not fun enough I mean I really gotta you know maybe I can hand make a you know a paper mache thousand dollar pinata would that work is that fun or is that racist? I don't know. I don't know. But I could, you know, I could have fun with a pinata in my house. And I could, I could spend a thousand dollars on a pinata, get some fancy ass paper, make some paper mache, put some fucking rhinestones and shit on it. I mean, I could, I could make a thousand dollar pinata. Full of full of fancy ass chocolate, you know. Spend five hundred dollars on chocolate, stuff it inside the pinata. Or is that would that be racially insensitive? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I will not be applying for that particular grant. Uh, not fun, but interesting on a self-reflective level. I've been, uh, 
I've been uh, doubling down on meditation since I have more time on my hands and I can sort of keep a regular schedule for little 10 minute meditation sessions. And I use an app online. I use, uh, I use a, what's his name? Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist, I believe, and also a famous atheist. Uh, he's one of the, what's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, uh, I forget all who all the four horsemen were, but Sam Harris was one. I think Christopher Hitchens was another, but he's dead now. Um, and a couple other people who wrote kind of popular books about atheism. Um, so I, you know, I was interested in, in learning about meditation, but I wanted as little woo-woo bullshit as possible. So I went with Sam Harris because he has an app. You just put it on your phone and you can play it once a day. And, uh, I've got to a point where there's this particular meditation exercise where you're supposed to wish someone else like well, or like wish or project good feelings onto someone that you know personally. Um, and I find this exercise absurdly difficult because, because it's who, who do you pick? So you, you start, the meditation starts, you know, you close your eyes, you picture someone that you know, and then you just, you know, alone in a, in the dark or a dimly lit room with your eyes closed, you're just imagining someone you know and wishing good things for them. I don't understand the point of this exercise. You know, I, I, I'm expecting meditation to be more self-indulgent, you know? I want to wish good things about me. And at the end of the exercise, it does turn around back to you. It's sort of like, I guess if you... I don't know if you hate yourself and, and you have problems thinking well of yourself. I guess this is a way to do that. You just sort of transfer those feelings from someone else onto you at the end. But I find it, it's really hard for me to imagine someone in my life and then unreservedly and unequivocally wish good things for them. <laughs> I don't know why that should be so hard. You know, it's not like, it's, it's not that, it's not like I hate everyone in my life. Um, it's just, I don't know, relationships with other people are complex. And for whatever reason, most of the people in my life that I like and I think well of, I find I can't just unreservedly wish good feelings for them. I can only think of two people in my life. And a lot of, you know, I, I was telling this to my girlfriend and she's like, yeah, but just think of me. And I go, no, that's the problem. I, I can't think of you like that because I have sex with you. And because I have sex with you, that's an aspect to the relationship 
that I can't just unreservedly wish good things for you because there's some sort of romantic component to our relationship. I probably need a therapist to work through this, but I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> I'll just do the meditation. So there's only two people I could really like think of. One is a um, girl who owns a gym I work at. Super nice, lover to death. Um, you know, I've never entertained any sort of romantic feelings toward her. So, um, I can just wish her well unreservedly, you know, she's just, just an awesome person. And then another one is, uh, my gay, gay boyfriend, a good friend of mine. He's super gay, flaming gay. And he's another one where I can just unreservedly wish him good feelings and, there is no romantic component to our relationship because I'm super straight. Um, and I can just wish good things for him because he's super awesome, super nice, just a really like good person. And I don't usually like, I guess that's not true. I find most people who fancy themselves good people are not really that good. Um, but there are a few people I know, um, who are just really great people, but they don't really run around, you know, thinking of themselves as good people. They just are good. They don't have to think about it. They just are it. Um, and I found most people who I've definitely got a few people in my life who worry about being a good person and will say and do annoying things because... You know, they think that's what good people do. And I know that deep down they are not good people. <laughs> They're all actually pretty selfish. Um, I definitely do not picture them when I'm trying this meditation exercise. Or even like your parents, like your relationship with your parents is so, you know, it's complex. So I can't just think of my mother or my father and unreservedly wish them good things, even though I, you know, I don't really have a real issue with either of them. <laughs> it's just, I've known them my whole life and, you know, despite their best efforts, they've let me down occasionally and I'm cool with that. You know, people let each other down. That's what we do with each other. It's not, I don't hold any grudges, but also it's, I've tried just picturing my mother and wishing unreservedly good things for her. And that's really hard to do too. So I'm wondering in this meditation exercise, is that the point? Is that, is that why it's hard because of, you know, all our conflicting feelings towards other people in our lives or do most people find this an easy exercise? <laughs> Because they, they just genuinely, unreservedly love everyone in their life. That's probably not the reason. Um, I mean, it's been few and far between for me to find, you know, to have those people in your life who are just really awesome people with no strings attached. Um, I could probably count those people on one hand. Um, or is is the point of the exercise... 
I'm going to have to email Sam Harris and ask him, <laughs> is the point of this exercise to project those good feelings onto people in your life who you find it difficult to do so? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that like if definitely if I'm if I'm attracted to someone or if I've had or I'm having a sexual relationship with them, I kind of want them to suffer just a little, just a little bit, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. I do want generally for most of these people. I do want good things to happen to them but I also want a little bad too <laughs> just a little bit you know you know maybe they stub their toe or mm, maybe they get one of those you know random collection agency letters that's complete bullshit but it you know it still wastes six hours of your uh, of your day off <laughs> spending time on the phone getting it taken care of you know nothing major just little speed bumps in the road of life hmm so CDC says there's uh, no need to wash your groceries anymore we don't have to wipe down our packages the virus does not live on surfaces, as far as they know. Mm. And a lot of people I know are, are kind of, well, most people I know, you know, they don't really watch the news. They just get all their news secondhand. Um, so they're not even going to be privy to this new information. <laughs> they're still just going to be wiping down their groceries. It's like... Most people, they hear something once, they just accept it as gospel, and then anytime anything conflicts that, they just kind of ignore it or don't pay attention to it. Um, so, but some people I know are kind of annoyed or angry that, uh, you know, there's such a lack of information about, you know, what's effective or what's not. Really, it's, this is nothing new. Um, and really... This whole COVID-19 pandemic has never been about saving lives. Shutting, shutting down countries and restricting travel and making people not work, is it's not about saving lives. The, de the death toll is at about, was it like 100,000 now? So I think the worst case projections back in February were two, 2 million. So they said, if we do nothing, 2 million people in the United States are going to die. Um, and that's easy to say because you have no idea. And then as long as you institute some measures and any number below 2 million people die, you can count that as a success. Um... But so far, 100,000 people have died. And who knows? That'll probably double. 
you know, the death rate's going down, but once we open shit up again, you know, there's going to be more cases. Um, so by the end of the year, that might double. So out of 375 million people in the United States, so far, 100,000 have died. And over 30 million people are out of work. In order to save however many people we've actually saved. And who knows? Who knows how many people have not died because of the measures we put in place? Um, but none of this, none of really the world's reaction to the pandemic has been about saving lives. It's all been about compliance. So whether you wash your vegetables or don't wash them doesn't really matter. It's just in the beginning, we had to train everybody to comply. So you wear your mask, you wash your vegetables, you spray down your UPS packages, you keep six feet away from everybody, you don't shake hands. These are all measures of compliance. Um, and we kind of, it seems like we need something like this every 10 years. You know, we need the, uh, we need the country or the world to get behind something. Um, the last best one we had, I think, was 9-11. Um, a lot of the aftermath of 9-11 was about compliance. It was about overt displays of patriotism. So everyone put little flags on their cars. We're wearing little American flags. on All the news anchors were wearing a little American flags on their lapel shirts. It didn't matter whether you were at CNN or you worked at Fox. Everybody's wearing the American flag. Nobody wanted to be seen as not patriotic. Um, and it's good to have like a visual symbol of compliance. Uh, that was the problem with the 2008 financial crisis is there is no, you know, there's no symbol of c compliance. So there's nothing really to rally behind when there's a big event like that. There was a big... There was a big backlash against Wall Street, but there's no, Wall Street isn't a real thing. It's, it's an idea. So it's hard to, it's hard to rally against an idea that doesn't actually really exist. It's just, you know, nobody really understands what Wall Street is or how it works. And then the few people who do are profiting from it. So they can quietly profit from it and overtly rail against it. So the 2008 crisis was not, you know, we had like an Occupy movement, but nobody really knew what that was or what their goals were. Other than that, they didn't like Wall Street and they couldn't explain it to anybody. Um, and even if we did know what their goals were, how would we enact them? How would we go about achieving those goals? So that was kind of doomed to fail from the start. Um, but the Corona pandemic is great because we've got a great visual symbol in the mask and wearing the face mask. And that's a great measure of compliance. You can wear the mask or not wear the mask. But if you don't wear the mask... You're kind of a piece of shit. Because it's one thing, if you're not wearing a little American flag pin or have put a little American flag on your car, 
it's kind of like, you know, overt displays of patriotism and nationalism, nationalism are always a little gauche. But with the mask, I mean, that's people's lives, supposedly. Whether you wear the mask or don't wear the mask. And if you don't wear the mask, you know, you could possibly infect somebody and then they die and you don't, no one even knows, you know, you could just infect somebody and then they would die and you wouldn't even know it was you. And Corona is great because you can be infected with it and transmit it and never show any symptoms. So having everybody wear the mask, whether the mask is effective or not, is a great way to get everybody to comply with shit. Which we don't, we like to pretend we don't like to comply in America, but we actually, we love to comply. But we also need like an enemy to comply against together. So typically the right, the political right, will rally around like, you know, say they rally around the American flag. And then the left will shun those overt displays of patriotism. And then instead, they'll rally around uh, hashtag resist or a futurist female t-shirt. That's their, that's their flag to, to rally behind. And then they have a nice little opposition on the right. I think the corona pandemic is, it's probably somewhere in between the 2008 financial crisis and 9-11 as far as something to rally behind. Because there is a good backlash against all the all the protective measures for Corona. Um, And there's the argument between do we shelter in place and try to keep people from dying of Corona or do we open things up because, you know, with all the sheltering in place, suicides and domestic violence and substance abuse have skyrocketed. So we may be saving a few people from dying of Corona but we're possibly also increasing the likelihood of death and violence among everyone else. So there is no real, there's no real right way to go with any of this. You just, you wear the mask, you're doing the right thing. You don't wear the mask, you're doing the right thing. And then it can all just be, divided along tribal lines. I read something interesting where, you know, because we've got like a super high unemployment right now, that there is a death toll for every percentage point that unemployment rises. Um, And a lot of that can be kind of chalked up to substance abuse or suicide or domestic violence um, among the unemployed. And I've, guess apparently that death rate that rises only rises among the people who are unemployed. But then also, conversely, overall in a recession, overall mortality rates go down. So 
mortality rates go up among the unemployed, but for everybody else who remains employed, their mortality rate goes down. And no one knows why. (laughs) There's some conjecture that, like, if the economy takes a step back, that there's less air pollution. And that's why everybody else lives slightly longer. Except if you're the one who happened to lose your job, then because your stress level is up, you're more likely to die. But I don't know, that air pollution thing sounds ridiculous. Like how much does the air pollution actually go down in a recession? Um, But that is interesting that also with as an economy gets better, quote unquote, um, overall mortality goes up. So it could be pollution related and also just stress related. I mean, your, your job is killing it. And I don't know the way our current capitalism works is we have a infinite growth model. So you keep having to make more and more and more and more money. Like that stress goes way up. I've had a few jobs where I've had shitty idiot managers who read shit and don't understand the shit that they're actually reading. You know, they love to quote that infinite growth thing. We got to make more this September than we did last September. And you're like, why? (laughs) I mean, last September was pretty good. How about we just stay even? It's pretty good. Why do I have to, why do I have to kill myself to make a little bit more? It's like, it's not, it's not worth it. Um, so that may be why I, I would believe that more than the, the pollution thing. Not that, you know, I do like the environment, but who knows? Uh, yeah. So, and you know, there is no right answer. Who knows? Wear your mask. Don't wear your mask. Um, it really has nothing to do with transmitting the virus or not it's like if you live with people who have the virus you're probably going to get it if not then not but you don't got to wipe all your groceries down i guess that's what i'm saying i'm just spreading the word uh all right none of that made sense that's cool they can't all be winners Uh, i did read a great article about plague in Shakespeare's time uh, just because I've been hearing a lot about especially uh, like live performances everybody's wondering like well when are they going to come back are they going to come back or are we going to have live music again or is stand-up comedy dead or you know what's going to happen with theater how am I going to see the ferryman um, everyone's freaking out and then I read this great article about Shakespeare and in Shakespeare's time um, which was about, I think Shakespeare's early 1600s. I mean, I only studied lots of Shakespeare in college. I should know this, but yeah, definitely, you know, it's around Queen Elizabeth the first era, which was late 15. I think she died maybe 1602, 1603. Um, that's about the time when Shakespeare was florid. Um, and apparently the black plague was raging all through Shakespeare's career so I mean I guess when when we hear about the Black Plague 
or read about it. There's usually the big one, like the big, which was in the, who knows, 13, 1400, something like that. And that's when it like wiped out a half to three quarters of the population of Europe and devastated the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the old world. China was fucked and the Middle East was fucked and everybody was fucked. Um, but you know, the, that was the big one. That was the black, the big plague, but there were lots of other breakouts of bubonic plague for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, every few years it would, it would roll through. And I guess in Shakespeare's time was a particularly messy time for the black plague. So there were like years at a time when no theater was happening in Shakespeare's time because they pretty much did what we do now. They would uh, do social distancing, which they didn't call it that back then. They would shutter public spaces. I think the only thing they did, they never stopped church services um, because they assumed that if you were worshiping God, you would not be stricken with the plague. <laughs> but I guess if you were already sick, you were not allowed to come to church. So, you know, they did have a limit on that too. But yeah, and I guess um, when Shakespeare, you know, when he wrote all his most famous plays, when he wrote Hamlet, Macbeth, um, Midsummer Night's Dream, like his his most popular works, that was all within the same like five or six year period. And the plague rolled through like nine times during that period. And almost two, like within two years or a two year span, theaters were only open about three months. So this was like a common, common occurrence back then. And I guess my point is that live performances aren't going anywhere. People want to see him. And this is the Black Plague. Like, this really killed a lot of people. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about if comedy is coming back or not. It's coming back. And we're still going to shake hands. We've been shaking hands at least for a thousand years. And we've had horrible plagues roll through. People didn't shake hands for a while, and then people started shaking hands again. And not that I'm an advocate of shaking hands. Like, I don't want to shake your hands. I won't be sorry if it doesn't come back, but it's going to come back because some people like fucking shaking hands. They like touching other people. They like hugging strangers. I hope that shit never comes back, but it probably will. Because fucking huggers... You fucking huggers out there, you just can't help yourselves. You just have to force your hugs non-consensually on everybody else. Tired of people hug-raping me. All right, I guess it's story time. I don't know that any of these ramblings made sense. Let's tell a story about the time my dad beat up the ice cream man when I was a kid. Um, so I grew up mostly in Berlin in Germany because so my parents were in the army. Um, my parents were code breakers like during the Cold War. So they'd kind of sit in a bunker with these headphones on and they'd listen to hours and hours of Russian and East German 
Soviet code, and then their job was to break the code, um, which sounds cool. It'd probably make a cool movie. I, I'm pretty sure in real life. It's just boring as fuck. It's, I guess if you like coding computers, if you derive a lot of joy out of going through lines of XHTML, then maybe that's a job for you, but I would hate that shit. Um, so their job was in Berlin, and I grew up mostly in Berlin. I was there from, I think, 81 to 93, so between the ages of, I think, four... No, I guess five, 81, I was five. Yeah, so between the ages of five and almost 17, I lived in Berlin. And I had a little stint where we came back to the States and I lived in Arizona for a year, but then we were right back to Berlin. Um, so ice cream men. So, you know, in Europe, they had ice cream men just like they had in America. I didn't, actually didn't even know. I thought it was only a German thing, the ice cream man. I expected when I came back to the States, you know, when I was almost, when I was 17 was like, I saw an ice cream man. I go, Oh, you guys got this shit here too. I didn't even thought that was a German thing. Um, but it's Germany. So their ice cream tastes a little different. It's, uh, you know, it's like that line in Pulp Fiction. It's, they got the same shit. It's just a little bit different. So their ice cream is more, I don't know. It tastes a little weird. A lot of hazelnut and everything. Like they just like, you know, they like different flavors than we do. So everything, all their chocolate had like this little hazelnut Nutella type tinge to it. Um, and then a lot of citrus ice cream. So there was a lot of like lemon and lime ice cream, which I don't really, I don't really, I don't really see as far as cheap ass ice cream. I don't see a lot of that in America. Um, you know, America is mostly chocolate, vanilla, strawberry with a bunch of bullshit, bunch of bullshit in it. Germany, they didn't like, you know, they just wanted the simple ice cream, um, with pistachio, a lot of nuts, they like to put a lot of nuts in their shit. Um, so yeah, so you have this dude, he's a German dude and we lived in like these American neighborhoods. Um, they were kind of like projects, I guess, but a nicer. So it wasn't like a ghetto, but it was set up. I don't know if you've ever been to a project in a city. It's, you know, big kind of imposing looking buildings with lots of cookie cutter apartments in them. And that's kind of how the the American neighborhoods were, like the American military neighborhoods were. Um, so it was like a big building, big apartment building. And then a playground in between and then another apartment building. And then it would just go on like that in a row. Um, and the, it wasn't like, it was, it was okay. You know, it was kind of middle class type or working class housing. Everything was kept pretty clean because it's still kind of a, you know, it's a department of defense military neighborhoods so they don't let you just like live in squalor um you know everything was pretty well maintained there seemed to be plenty of money in a budget you know to fix the slides and playgrounds and you know they'd always be digging a new sandbox there seemed to be there was plenty of money for this shit even though we were told at any moment the soviets were going to invade and hold all the 
children dependents hostage and use us as human shields so that they, they don't nuke Moscow. This is what I was told, you know, pretty frequently when I was there. Just, you know, as a, as a be prepared. When World War III happens, you're going to be used as a human shield. <laughs> Other than that, I was, you know, had a great time growing up there. Um, so uh, they would have these German ice cream men, you know, some guy owns an ice cream truck, kind of creepy, just like I'm sure they are in America. And they drive from building to building and stop. And then this is summertime, so there's no schools. So you just, you run out and uh, you have to pay. And this was before the Euro. So uh, we use Deutschmarks. And I think they may have taken dollars too. They probably, everybody takes dollars everywhere. Um, but normally you just pay in the local German money, which was the mark. And uh, one day, had to have been a weekend, Saturday or Sunday, because my dad was drinking. It was probably a Sunday. He usually would just like drink beer all Sunday and watch whatever football he could find um, on the one American military station. And then Ice Cream Man comes. My dad gives me like 10 marks, which I don't know what the exchange rate was, but it was like, uh, let's say it's $15. Um, and so I take my 10 marks and he's like, all right, go get some ice cream. And I go down and then uh, my little friends who weren't really my friends, I don't know, growing up, up there, it's kind of rough if you grew up among other military brats because it's it's not like Compton, you know, like there's not bullets whizzing by. There's no shootouts, but there's a lot of fights. And I didn't realize this then, but looking back, it's because most people who join the military are pretty young. And if they're married and have kids... They're way too young to be married and have kids. So most of my friend's parents were probably like 23 or 24 years old. You know, they're just idiot kids. And I was, um, let's say I was like eight or nine years old. So my parents would have been early 30s. But most of my friend's parents were way younger than that. Um because, you know, they join the military when they're 18 and they get married, have a kid right away, and they're idiots. So there was not a lot of parental supervision, and this was the 80s, so there, there's not a lot of parental supervision going on. So we were just fucking wild, almost Lord of the Fly type kids, and we had a hierarchy. It was kind of like running around a little wolf pack, at least among the boys. Although the girls threw down too. Some of these girls were fucking badass bitches. So there's a hierarchy generally of who could kick whose ass. And I always seemed to be third. So there'd be like kind of a slightly older kid who was kind of dumb. He'd be number one and he would hang out with the younger kids because he could beat up on all of us. And then there'd be his number two who would be even meaner than the number one and really like throw his weight around to keep us all in line. And then I was always slightly big for my age. So I'd be number three. I'd be the reluctant number three. Um, just trying to get through the day and not get in a fight. 
And then there'd be these other kids below, below me. Um, and then I'd basically like live in fear of having the number one or the number two, usually the number two, <laughs> try to beat me up. Or number four, five, six and below trying to test me so they could take my spot. That was that was my life between the ages of six and ten, probably. So on this particular Sunday, my dad gives me ten marks and we're gonna go I'm gonna go get some ice cream. And I was amazed he gave me ten marks. I was cause that's, you know, I can get I can get a little cone with two scoops for probably a mark 50, one mark 50, uh, not pet, fenning. That's what it was, fenning, not pence, cents. So the German sense was fenning. Um, so I was like, great, I'm going to get a fucking fancy ass banana split or some shit. I'm going to get everything. And I go down and then my little friends, mostly number one and number two, um, see, I've got a bunch of money and they're like, Hey, why don't you get one? Hey, Patrick, why don't you get me some ice cream? And I'm like, Oh, great. I'm going to get these guys ice cream. And that should buy me a week or two of not getting punched in the face. <laughs> that was, that was my, that was my thought. Um, so, and I just end up buying ice cream for everybody. Everybody gets a cone, but two scoops and I spent the whole 10 marks and then uh and then I go back upstairs with my ice cream and my dad's like hey where's my change and uh, I don't have any change because I just bought everybody ice cream all the little shits <laughs> he used to beat me up and all the little shits who tried to beat me up and forced me to beat them up instead when I just wanted to be left the fuck alone <laughs> I bought all those little shits ice cream and, but I don't tell my dad that I go, Oh, he didn't give me any change. And my dad gets this. My dad was, uh, he was like a, like a tough guy type guy, which I was not. Cause he's actually my stepdad. So my mother married him when I was like five. And then I started living with them prior to that. I lived with my grandmother and a couple of my aunts. So I was raised by kind of like, up until I was maybe four or five years old, I was raised by kind of NPR granola feminists. NPR granola kind of asexual feminists. And I was the only kid around back then. So I was hanging around a bunch of adults. Um... So I think that's probably why I never really understood kids because I didn't I didn't really have other kids to play with until I was around five or six years old. And I didn't really know how to relate to them because I'd spend up until then trying to relate to adults, to boring, very nice. You know, they're very nice, but they're very dull, <laughs> very dull, boring, kind of like atheist, liberal bookworm adults and I was not prepared for the crazy wolf pack <laughs> that I would later be thrust into um and my dad was very much like like a man's man like he grew up in uh he's, he was, grew up Irish Catholic 
in South Philly, I think South Philly, somewhere, somewhere in Philly. Um, you know, he was in, he was in a biker gang up until the point where he joined the army. So he would throw down and he would get, when he gets pissed and I knew I was in trouble, he get a look on his face that was kind of like, it was kind of like a mix kind of it kind of looks like a like whenever Bruce Willis is in a movie he gets this look on his face when he's about to punch somebody in the face my dad would get that look it's kind of like a like you stick your tongue in your bottom lip and like push it out my dad would do that so he did that I told him I did not have any change because the ice cream man did not give me any change back my dad makes that face and he stalks downstairs so i think we lived on the third floor of this apartment building so he's out the door he's stomping down the stairs i'm running after him like oh shit <laughs> what did i just do and i'm hoping to god that the ice cream man has left and so he can't confront the ice cream man and my lie will never be found out so we get downstairs, the ice cream man is gone. I'm like, great. And then my dad is like, oh. He grabs this little girl's bike, this little girl named Julie, who was a little ginger kid like me. Um, and all the other kids used to say, hey, you and Julie should make out because you're both gingers. And I wanted nothing to do with her because I'm like, she looks like she could be with my sister. And she's kind of gross. Um, so he grabs this little Julie girl's bike, uh, and it's a girl's bike. It's a little girl's bike. It's got the little tassels on the handlebars. It's got like a big banana seat and he grabs this little girl's bike and he rides it down to the next, it's just the next building over. It's the, it really, the guy stops at every playground. It's just the next playground over. It's maybe 50 meters away. So he grabs the bike He's chasing after the ice cream man and I'm sprinting after him like, no, like I'm hoping the guy, the ice cream man takes off, but he doesn't take off because he's at the other playground 50 meters away and he's got a long line of kids with these kids who live in those buildings. And my dad kind of jumps off Julie's bike, stalks up the ice cream man, kind of pushes these little kids out of the way. And he just starts yelling at the ice cream man in English. Ice cream man's German. I don't think he speaks much English. Um, and I kind of stop because I don't want to get too close, but I can see everything that's happening. Um, and then, so my dad's just yelling at the guy. He's like shaking his finger in his face. And then the ice cream man is yelling something back in Germany. And then my dad gives him like a little rude gesture. And then my dad's walking back and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> we're cool. <laughs> Nothing really happened. I don't think I was found out. He seemed like he took the ice cream man by surprise, you know, and the guy's just reacting like, why is this fucking dude yelling at me in my little window? And so my dad walks back, kind of stalking back. And then the fucking, this is where I don't feel sorry. <laughs> For the ice cream man. The ice cream man leans out the window, yells something at my dad, and then my dad makes the Bruce Willis face again because he's walking towards me and I can see his face and his eyes light up. And it's like, 
that's really what my dad was waiting for. He was waiting for a real excuse to beat the shit out of this guy. And the guy gave it to him. So my dad turned around, stalked back, grabbed the guy, the ice cream man, by his shirt, pulled him out of his little window, slams him on the ground, and gives him a nice two or three punches to the face. <laughs> Leaves him lying there on the sidewalk. And then my dad walks back. And it doesn't seem like he hurt the guy too much because the guy kind of got up right away and then was yelling at my dad again. He wasn't going after my dad, but then he was like yelled something. And then my dad just kind of like waves him off. He's walking back. Tells me to take that little girl's bike back to her. (laughs) And then that was it. And then I was the coolest kid in the neighborhood for maybe another two weeks. (laughs) Nobody fucked with me for two weeks. So buying everybody ice cream probably wouldn't have done anything, but my dad punching the ice cream man in the face got me two weeks of being unmolested. And I think it was worth it. I have no real regrets. I mean, really... You know, the ice cream man didn't do anything wrong and he was assaulted because of a lie I told. But also, this is Germany. This is Berlin in the 80s. And that dude was probably a Nazi or his parents were Nazis. So I can't feel too bad about it, really. At least that's what I tell myself on the once a year I remember this story. And that, everyone, was a story about the virtues of toxic masculinity.